Hi, this is Elizabeth Bailey, and you're listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Psychologists have proved that knowing the end of a story doesn't actually ruin the story for you. So they did this study. They gave a huge number of people 12 short stories, fairly well-known short stories. And for half the group, they slipped in a spoiler paragraph on like the first page telling exactly how the story would end, and the other half just had the short story. And they found out that the people who actually read the spoiler paragraph first ended up saying they enjoyed the stories more than the other people. It's counterintuitive, but this idea that you can see where things are going and make the connections throughout the story actually makes you believe it deeper, study it further. So in that light, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 5 first. It's the last chapter of this book. Take a look with me at verses 1 through 3. This is where Paul's going in his letter to the Thessalonians. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, and when it says brothers, that's shorthand for the family of God, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And Paul is writing and telling them that they are correct to care a great deal about this day of the Lord, this day when Jesus will come back and the world will end. This church in Thessalonica had this big understanding that the world is heading somewhere and I should live my life in light of that fact. And that's why we named this series, How to Live When the World is Ending. See, all the time in between Jesus rising from the dead And his coming return is the end times. It's not some other time. It's all the space between the day Jesus rose from the dead and the day he returns is the end times. And what we're looking at is Paul is drawing on Jesus' own teaching. Jesus teaches this very thing in Matthew 24. Look at our Lord's words right here about the end of the world. Jesus tells us heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's why we trust God's word and a value here at Citizens is God's word over everything. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son. Jesus saying he doesn't, somehow doesn't even know, but only the father, God. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. That's Jesus's favorite name for himself, the son of man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating drinking, heading out the back 40, getting married, getting married like Chris and Jen back there, freshly married and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, all these people, he's building an ark. No one cares what Noah's doing. The earth is big. They don't even know where the ark is. And they're all just living their life. And Jesus is saying the end of the world will be like that. Verse 39, they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming... See how Paul's referencing this very passage. He would have kept watch 
and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect him. Jesus is very clear that he comes and he will come again. And when he comes for the second time, the world will come to a close. Heavens and earth will pass away. He will build a new heavens and new earth, but is what we understand as the end times. This day of the Lord, this mirrors right to Zephaniah's prophecy from two weeks ago when we talked about this great day of the Lord that's coming. And so what are we told to do? What are we told by Paul? What are we told by Jesus? Jesus says to be ready and to keep watch, not as a hollow phrase, but a key insight of how do you live faithfully about a very certain future that in some ways is unknowable. You don't know the day. You don't, the signs are inscrutable. They're difficult to see. So what do you do? You ready yourself. You keep watch. And what Paul's going to unpack for the rest of this book is teaching us what that vagueness of being ready and watchful really means. Does it mean become a doomsday prepper? No. Does it mean at Y2K buying 100 pounds of freeze-dried eggs like my family? They're disgusting, by the way. Does it mean you need a compound? Does it mean you need to buy crypto? Does it mean you need to buy gold? We're going to find out what it really means to follow Jesus to be ready and watch. For the end of the world could be in the parking lot today, or it could be lurching for another 2,000 years or more. We have no way to know. Look how Paul concludes Thessalonians in chapter 5. But since we belong to the day, that's his metaphor for those who are awake and are part of Jesus' church, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet of the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, asleep is his word for those who've already died, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as we're doing. My prayer and hope for you is that this series, these five weeks, this one book of Thessalonians would encourage you and build you up to bet all of your life, all of your hope, all of your faith, all of your love on the Jesus who saves us from the wrath to come. To be ready for the Lord's coming is to place all of your hope, all of your love, all of your faith in Jesus and take it out of absolutely everything else. It's like a gutting of a house. He's saying, I need you to take out all the furniture that's molding, all the drywall that's not working, all the sinks need to come out and everything needs to be about faith, love, and hope put firmly on Jesus who loved us first. Jesus is the object of our hope. Jesus is the one who gives us faith when we were faithless. To be ready for the Lord is to grow in maturity and faith, hope, and love. It's less about all the small preparations that people's anxiety manifests, and it's completely about living by faith in the Son of God, full of hope and full of love. 
So look with me as we turn. So this church is forming in Thessalonica, and it's in Macedonia, which is now modern northern Greece. But it's an interesting story because as Paul writes back to this church that he's visited, he visits Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, but it's a weird story what happens, and we get a window to it in Acts 17. Look with me. This is Paul's first visit to Thessalonica in Acts 17. And it says this, it says, now they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So Paul and his buddy Silas were only there for three weeks, three Sabbath days. That's three Saturdays in a row. So he showed up, he went to the synagogue. He said, I'm a Jew of Jews. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I was in the Pharisees. Let me preach. Or maybe he just preached outside. We're not totally sure. But some people heard this message and this is what happened. Explaining and proving it was necessary from the Old Testament that Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, sometimes we think of Jesus Christ like as Jesus' first and last name. That's not what it is. Christ means Messiah, anointed one. So he's telling these Jewish people, the person you've been waiting on for the whole Old Testament, he came. He came, and I believe him, and I'm showing you from the Old Testament that this is the real Jesus Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. A little shout out for everybody there. So when he says this, you see he's been there for three weeks and all these people have actually decided to believe, at least some of the people who heard this gospel. But verse five says this, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of rabble. So the Jewish people who did not believe got jealous and they went to, it seems like the the local bar because they don't want to form the mob. They don't want to get crazy. They don't want to be the drunken mob. They go and find the wicked men of rabble. They form a mob and they set the city in an uproar, shouting, these men who've turned the world upside down have come here also, saying that there's another King Jesus. Church, if we want to turn the world upside down like the disciples, we must live as though we have another King named Jesus that our king is not capitalism, our king is, is not our life, our king is not our personal preferences, but our king is Jesus. How wonderful would that be to be said of us? And the people in the city and the authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So that's the setting. Paul preached the gospel for three weeks, had some good fruit, but then was ushered out of the city in a mob in the middle of the night. And now he pens back this letter to check on them, to encourage them, to strengthen them, because the church plant when he left it was three weeks old. These are the first believers ever in Thessalonica, out in Macedonia, kind of a far reach of the empire, far from Jerusalem. And how he encourages them is this. He tells them that they have found true salvation. 
that just because Paul was only there three weeks, just because they didn't get to hang out much, just because they don't know everything, doesn't mean their salvation is faulty, doesn't mean their salvation is going to break. Instead, he gives them marks of what true salvation is, not as a test, but to encourage them that you got the real deal. Though it was brief, though the city's in uproar, though you're having problems, guess what? The gospel isn't broken. Your life may be in shambles if you had to leave your family, leave your home to follow Jesus, if your whole life is changing. But this gospel has clear marks that you can know you've met the real God and you have true salvation. So look with me at these five marks of true salvation. Verse four, Mark one, true salvation comes from God. For we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul rejoices that the church plant, it didn't go under in this conflict. In fact, it's doing fine. Why is it doing fine? Because they're loved by God and they're chosen by God. And how does God know? And how does Paul know this? Because when he preached the gospel of the word, it was accompanied by the power in the Holy Spirit. See, the word without the spirit is powerless. The spirit without the word is weaponless. But when they're together, as Ephesians 6 tells us, it is something that cuts through us. It teaches us, that makes us anew. And Paul's like, man, I was there. I was there. I saw the power of God at work. Why? Because they had full conviction. It says that they knew it. They felt it. They saw their sin. They saw their God and they turned and believed. When it says those devout Greeks that believed, those are people who Greek or origin decided, I'm going to start going to synagogue and becoming Jewish by custom because I think this God of the Old Testament's the real God. And look at these people seeking after God, and here's God coming and bringing the gospel right to them. God is so sweet that Jesus, when he says, anyone who asks, they will have an answer. Anyone who seeks will find. Anyone who knocks, it will be answered. And that was the case in this Thessalonica. Those who were seeking God found him and found a gospel that had full effect in their life. But the word and the spirit of God, they apply the saving work of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection to us. The word illuminates the truth, and the spirit brings the grace to make a new person, to make a new life, to make someone belong to the kingdom of God. And true salvation comes from God. They didn't will themselves up to believe, but instead God came and change their heart. No angry city can stop that. But there's more. Look at Mark 2. The evidence of true salvation is joy. For you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The number one evidence that you belong to Jesus is the joy that comes from knowing Jesus. It is throughout, it's a fruit of the Spirit and throughout the Bible that when you see a person's joy that's rising above their circumstance, it doesn't mean they ignore their circumstance or act like bad things aren't happening. These people knew the city was in uproar and they were the the point. They were the mob was coming for them. But he says in their affliction, they continue to receive the word with joy. And the same for us. When we have joy that has nothing to do with our circumstance, That's God at work in your life. 
If you wonder where God is and the bad things at work or the bad things with your body or the bad things with your family, he's at work in the joy in your heart. To turn to him and know Jesus in the midst of trouble is to know Jesus truly. And that's what Paul encourages them. I saw this word come in power and full conviction, and I saw it come with the joy of your salvation. Which brings Mark 3. This joy leads to an imitation of Jesus in his church. Verse 6. And you became imitators of us in the Lord. See, it doesn't just make us joyful. To know Jesus truly means you want to be like Jesus. That's the turn you make. Instead of being like your hero or being like someone in your family or, or even trying to be an individual of individuals, you try to be like Jesus. It's still you. It's still Jackson following Jesus. But suddenly your desires are changed to be like Jesus. Now, your sinful desires may still fight against you. You may have other desires. You may have things that are hard to follow Jesus. But the evidence of this new life is a joy that makes you want to be like Jesus. That's what full conviction does. If someone claims Christianity but doesn't have the desires and actions to follow and imitate Jesus, they simply don't have salvation. Because salvation is real. It changes eternity, but it affects the now. That would be biblical salvation, that it's not some esoteric thing that happened in a dark room once and it was like a deal you made with God. It's the opposite. It's a relationship with God where the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, bringing a joy and a desire to follow Jesus that imitates Jesus's life. And we haven't met Jesus, but we've met other Christians. That's why he says you started imitating us as we imitated the Lord. See, true salvation comes with full conviction, but it comes with a joy and a new desire to follow Jesus. But look how God uses their imitation. This is Mark number four. They're unashamed of their salvation. Look at verse seven and eight. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we, not, we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. So Paul leaves Thessalonica. He goes on the road. But before he can write this letter back, he starts hearing about what happened with him in Thessalonica. The believers in Thessalonica are so excited about the gospel that apparently they sent letters or told their family or their friends that as he goes down the road, news about what's happening here is reaching Paul before Paul can even brag about what happened. They are so zealous for God that their life is changing and apparently they just can't shut up about it. They can't, they're not ashamed of salvation at all. They're saying, man, I was this way, now I'm this way. Jesus has done it all, I've done none and we're real thankful for Paul and Paul's joking around saying, I don't even have anything to say. That's testimony enough of the power of God. And there comes this application for us citizens. It's instructive for us. If we want to share the gospel powerfully, then we must obey Jesus sincerely. 
they receive this gospel in much conflict. Usually there's conflict in leaving the synagogue. They're in conflict not just with the synagogue or not just with the pagan uh, priestess or something, but the whole city does not like what they're doing. But they have decided to obey Jesus and obey him loudly no matter what. When it uses this word sounded forth in this passage, it's the same word in Greek used for peals of thunder. He's saying their action and their words have married together so that it's like a thunderclap going through Macedonia so that Paul's speechless, that the gospel has been so powerful even when he was there for three Saturdays. And yet the gospel's taking deep root in these believers among all the odds against them. What a way to plant a church. So here's the truth, church. Are you willing to brag on God? Are you willing in your life to brag on God? Because you would have thought like, man, I bet they saw some really cool miracles. Man, I bet, I bet someone got like rose from the dead there and that's what they're bragging about. No, the Thessalonica believers, they're bragging upon, I was a sinner and I found a great savior. I was told this radical message from this formerly Jewish man who believes in Christ. And as I look at the Bible, I see it's true. And they tell everybody, are you willing to brag unashamedly that every good thing in your life is from God? Are you willing to brag unashamedly at your great need for Jesus? You know what's compelling to your coworker? To say, I have great needs, but I have a greater Savior who's helping me through the darkest times in my life. I have a great Savior who's changing my character from the inside out. I have a great Savior that my spouse doesn't even recognize me anymore because I've been working on my anger. I've been working on my lying. I've been working on my pride. And it's not me getting it right or finding the right book. It's Jesus helping me because I come to him with my needs. So instead of us drumming up great deeds in our life, what if we just shared that Jesus is at work in my life? And let that be the most attractive thing about you, that Jesus is alive in your heart and he's changing you. The best advertisement for citizens and planting a church in the world is that God's at work in your life. That's why sometimes it rings hollow when we tell stories about other people and other things. People want to know, well, what about you? What about you, Abby? What is God doing? And to have to have the humility to say, I need Jesus. All the good stories about God start with me needing Jesus. It's not that I'm a Christian champion and follow me. It's that I'm a beggar and an orphan and I need God more than I ever thought I did. That the further I go with Jesus, the deeper my need for Jesus gets. God isn't getting us to a place where we're like a little kid who can walk on his own. We're learning to curl up in dad's arms. We're learning to see our legs are actually broken. And when we thought we were walking, we were just playing around in the mud. God is the God who wants to carry you all the way home. And the story of Thessalonica is like, yeah, we knew it, that Messiah had come. No, they had no clue. But they turned when they heard the good news of the gospel. I think, too, it would be a peal of thunder in Birmingham and the world if you said, Lord, I'm going to brag on you in ways that give you all the glory in the world consistently to my family, to my extended family, to my current friends, to my new friends, to everyone who will listen to me. I'm going to put God at the center of the story where he actually is. 
and talk about my great needs and his great deliverance in my life. Mark 5, this is the last mark he gives them. He gives these not as a big test. He says, I see all this. I've heard all this. He actually sent Timothy back to check on all this. So he has reasons to believe these marks are true, that true salvation has a transformation. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me. How you turn from God, from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now we got three verbs here. That they turned, they serve, and they wait. Three verbs for him. Jesus gets two. He rose from the dead and he's going to deliver from the wrath to come. But what's it look like a transformed life? I love this passage because there might not be a clear passage in the entire Bible of what conversion actually looks like. What conversion, if, you, if you're just staring down at it, what does it look like in a life? It has these three elements. The first one is turn. And that's a common word used for repentance throughout the Bible. That we must turn from X to God. A lot of times we think, okay, I need to drum up faith to now believe. I've heard many people say, man, I would believe if I only had faith. I'm saying, man, you have faith in all sorts of things. Jesus is inviting to take your faith out of the stock market, out of paying off the mortgage, out of that job, out of your degree, out of whatever, and put that same faith of ultimate hope in Jesus. We love all sorts of things. Almost everyone you meet loves something. Jesus is inviting you to turn and take that love, that ultimate love, out of your cat, out of your dog, out of your spouse, out of your kid, out of making a little more money next year, and put that love in Jesus Christ. He's asking you to take your hope, not that the world will get better or posi vibes only, and put that hope in Jesus Christ. Something that's real, something that lives, someone who breathes, who died his last and rose Again, there is a turning away. And what it gets real specific here, it says, he turned from God from idols to serve the living God. And an idol is anything in your life that you love or trust more than God. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, an idol in your life is anything, is, uh, anything in your life that if taken away, you would say life is no longer worth living. A lot of times we think of idols as only like treacherous bad things, like a gambling addiction or, or an alcohol addiction or, or, or some sin, sin problem that won't go away, and it's, it's the idol. But Tim's definition helps us see the truth that, well, the idols that they're referencing in Thessalonia, they may feel superstitious. They're made of wood or stone or gold. And we might think it's silly to worship these little statues like they were at the temples. All those stood for bigger ideas, for wealth, prosperity, for sexual fertility, for pleasure. So while theirs seemed superstitious, ours just got a little more sophisticated. That our idols might be trickier to see, but they're no less real. The pastor John Stott, the late pastor John Stott, said it this way, much of the world has superstitious idols, but the Western world has sophisticated ones, but no less deadly. I've had the privilege to travel large parts of the world and get to see people offering all sorts of things, from a living blood sacrifice of killing an animal and splashing it on stone, 
to offering things like Cokes and Sprites, like popping it in the morning and saying prayers and dumping a little before, offering meat or food or fruit or vegetables or just whatever the local culture had to these idols. And it would be easy to go, ha, I'm not like that. But in so many ways, aren't we? Our idols just look more respectable in our eyes. But they're things like getting into the right college or grad school or job to be successful. I'll only be happy if I reach a certain economic status. Our idols are finding the right marriage and getting great photos out of it will make me happy. Or perhaps it's well-behaved children who will make me whole. The idol of being cool coming at the expense of actual character and integrity in your life. Our idols of other people's opinions or followings on social media instead of knowing our status before God. Our idols of stopping everything and spending big, lavish amounts for Auburn or Alabama football or pick your sport, putting all your hopes and your schedule and your attention on a sports team that doesn't care about you at all, but they do want your money. And so you start to see all these good gifts that God gives us. They're good to be enjoyed, but they're not to be our gods. But so quickly our heart, as Calvin put it, the idol factory, tends to take a good gift and make it God so quickly. So before we say we're not like the Thessalonians, Maybe consider that we are to turn from idols to the living God, but turn and turn again as we realize anything that drives me to my actions or speech other than Christ is an idol. Our ultimate drive as Christians comes in the view of Christ as king. When things move outside of that, there's usually an idol behind it. We must turn and turn again but this turning comes to something. I once had a friend that says, hey man, I'm not dealing dope anymore. I'm really into working out. And people really celebrated him in our friend group. Like, man, I'm so glad you're not dealing dope. But suddenly that same bro was taking steroids and getting huge. His idol had just shifted. (laughs) The idol had become himself instead of the money in an illicit way. And so what we see is we don't just turn to turn or turn to more acceptable things. We turn to serve the living God. We give up our former ways. We give up our rights to be king of our life. And we embrace God as a living and true king, which means we live out his ways and we find real joy that our idols could never give. See, serving God isn't torture. It may be difficult, but it's actually the path to joy and freedom. Your idols want to make you zombies. They can't deliver on their promises, and they demand your allegiance at your ill. God wants to make you alive and ready to die to where you live a full life before him, knowing the goodness of God all the days of your life, and he actually can come through on his promises to you. While we actively turn and actively serve, that's the work of faith, hope, and love. But the third verb might be the hardest in our culture. It's to wait. Look what it says. It says to wait for his son from heaven. And I think this is really important because we live in a culture that says waiting is worse than no. We are an impatient people. From Alabama through California to Maine, that would be a trait of people living in America in America and Americans everywhere. 
is we just can't wait. But I want you to take the gospel medicine from the scriptures today. There are some things in life you're just going to have to wait. The deaths of our close family members, we can grieve with hope, but we're going to have to wait for the final comfort in heaven. Physical ailments, cancers, diseases that won't go away, painful things like miscarriages. There will be some hope and healing on this side of the grave, but some of this we're going to have to wait till Jesus wipes the tears out of our eyes. That's what it means to wait for the Son. That's what every martyr has had to learn. That's what the Thessalonians have had to learn, that at some point we're not guaranteed everything in this life. In fact, there's a lot of undone stories, and the story won't finish until we meet Jesus in the flesh, risen from the dead, Lord of the universe, who cares about us more than anyone. Are you okay to wait? Are you okay to have a joyful, patient heart even when things are difficult and say, it's okay for me to wait? It doesn't make Jesus less true, but it does mean he's forming me to look a lot more like God. God wants to use every ounce of our pain for us to look more like his son and to find more joy in God himself. But we must wait. And while we wait, Paul gives us a, feel, a way to fill that time and not just fill that time and avoid, but to cultivate a heart that can wait. We go back to the top of this passage, verse 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, hold these in your hands. Christians work in faith, hope, and love. Christians wait in faith, hope, and love. And the tension between our work and our wait is our thanksgiving to God. To acknowledge the things we're waiting on, we'll give thanks to God that he will be true in the end. To acknowledge in our work that he will be true and will honor our work in this life. To go either way, to say, I'm just going to work, work, work to the end of myself, and I'm going to fix everything, and it's going to work out, is a hopeless end. To sit on our hands and wait for our death or wait for God's coming only is not to live with hope either. We work and we wait, and the tension is a thankful heart in between. Citizens, I want to encourage you in three things. One, do you have true salvation? Do these marks of true biblical salvation sound like your life or do they not? And it's time to be honest that Southern Christianity may have convinced you that you know the Lord, but when you look at his scriptures, perhaps you do not. And instead of being scared of talking about that reality, I say, pull a friend aside, pull me aside. I would love to talk to you about receiving the Lord Jesus and having great confidence in following Jesus of the scriptures. Number two, will you mature, church? Will we look around and say our average age is right at 30, that we have a lot to learn, that we can't wait to grow? Will we choose this sermon series, but every sermon series to say, yes, I want to be pastored. I want this church to grow us together and the one another's. And I want to be filled with faith, hope, and love in an increasing way. Will we work and wait in this difficult life? 
That's a decision. We don't grow on accident. And I ask you, mature with me. Let's mature together. And three, will you give thanks while you wait? Will you follow the pattern Paul set for us that he gives thanks for the Thessalonians? But first he says, I thank God for you. Can you say that about the people in your life? That I thank God for Andy Wood. I thank God for Haley. I thank God for Andy. What if you saw that every good and perfect gift from above is from the Father of Lights who gives generous gifts to his kids? How would that blow the door off Monday at work to say, I believe every good thing in my life is from God and I can receive every bad thing knowing I may may have to wait to see the end of this thing. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.